Hey, tonight, you guys, we're going to look at uh, Second Thessalonians. We're going to look at the overview of the letter right here. There's a handout in the back. I'm guessing probably all you guys have it now. I saw it, saw it being handed out back there. That's outstanding. Let's open just a word of prayer. Take this time before the Lord, please. Father, how gracious you are to us to allow us to assemble as a body for your glory. Father, we want to be careful in how we handle your word. We want to be careful with the application we make. And we want to be careful to apply the application that you give us. Lord, I pray for the brothers and the sisters here tonight that this teaching would be useful for them. And through the teaching, your glory would just abound. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I wonder what you have hope in. Today, as you woke up and went about the business of life, what did you hope would happen? Maybe even what did you hope you would pray for? Was it your success at work? The children, perhaps a marriage partner if you're single, or a spouse if you're married, your retirement account? Or perhaps your health? Is the container holding whatever that hope may be sufficient to hold that hope? Will it contain it? You would probably never have heard of Karl Marx had it not been for V.I. Lenin. Marx was neither terribly successful nor terribly important in his own right, and had it not been for the Russian Revolution carried out three decades after his death, he'd be a footnote at best. Marx never produced a political program per se. The entirety of his plan for the New World Order was contained in 10 short points called the Communist Manifesto. Really nothing more than a brochure. He never defined them further. He never saw a need because Marx had a grander plan in mind. He was creating a religion. Now if you think about what we've been studying on Sunday nights, we've been looking at all these isms. Secular humanism, materialism. And I wrote this little ditty coming up here that, that, that I'm going to read to you. And I've taken what Marx created in Marxism and have applied Christian language to it. Hear me clearly. It's not Christian. But I want to see if you can hear, and this is part of what Travis has been teaching us, how the false gospel and the false teachers find their way into so many different aspects of life for us. Okay? Marx was producing a religion, and religions promise hope, right? Marx, the anti-Semitic Jew, the hater of Christianity and all it stood for, created an entire theology. Marx sought to turn the old order on its head to regenerate mankind through chaos. He preached ancient dualism and propounded materialism that would reduce man to mere matter in motion. He produced a counterfeit utopian view of the state which said man is morally neutral and therefore perfectible. He could utterly be remade. He could be, listen for it, regenerated or saved by the state or party in power to completely mold his environment, all producing a eschatology of certain victory. But once in the hands of the state, communist theology became thoroughly consistent with its presuppositions. 
just like all false gospels and religious systems, since the individual man was a biological machine, he could be discarded at will. Since good and evil were entirely relative, they could be defined entirely by the party and therefore by the state. And since the state, party, could and must regenerate man and build the paradise to come, its power must be absolute and unquestioned. And it was. And since victory was inevitable, millions could and would surrender their individuality, their families, and even their lives without a fight. Marx's theology birthed the greatest idol of all, the omnipotent state. This idol appealed to man more than any other in history because it made all morality relative and gave ambitious men the means to become gods themselves. Men with names like Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao, Castro. But this particular systematic theology also appealed precisely because it was not an idol of stone or wood, but of power. Prayers to it could be answered, needs and greeds fulfilled. And because it indulged all a man's basic, basic, basic instincts while appealing to his noblest motives, it was exactly the sort of God man wanted to create, a God in his own image. Both Marx and Lenin and even the citizens of the communist nations had hopes. Did their religion prove worthy of their hope? Well, yours and mine. Marxism is one example of idolatry rooted in false teaching. And like all other idolatries, past, present, and future, it failed. Hope rooted in idolatry will prove just as false as the teacher that professes it. The Lord is graciously shepherding and protecting us with this, against this false gospel with his infallible and sufficient and authoritative word. The hope found in his word is true hope. May we have ears to hear, hearts to repent, and arms and legs to act. For the overview, Gary kindly provided an overview of the history and the location and the setting of the Thessalonian church. And there are many parallels between the two books, yet they're different letters. We begin to see the pastor's heart of Paul in one letter, and that sweetly continues into the second written shortly just after the first. The cautions that Paul warns about in the first letter need further clarification and amplification in the second. The joy and boasting and teaching continue, trials continue, and he would say to the Thessalonian church in chapter 3, verse 7 and 9, and later to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, and again in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Watch me says Paul. Examine the gospel. Love the church. Watch for the vindication of the saints and the glories of Christ and the promise of his certain return. Observe the holiness and righteousness of God. Be resolved. Work. And have hope in it all. Though quite short, this letter hits most major Christian doctrines. The church, the gospel, the trinity, suffering, perseverance, Christ's judgment on the unrepentant, assurance, glorification of the saints, hell, aspects of the end times, demonology, Christian resolve, prayer, evangelism, theology of work, grace, and hope. And tonight, we're going to hit every one of them in great detail. Okay, so point one. And in your, in, 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 can you hear it okay, Tricia? Anyway, on the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the handouts you have right there, we're going to be doing a little spank in the blank tonight. Uh, 
I'll try to I'll try to highlight it when we get there. If 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 I forget, somebody put their hand up and say, "Hey, what up, dog?" And we'll get it done. Okay. That's what we'll do. All right, anyway, point one. Paul encourages the church by thanks and prayer. So, uh, Trisha, I'm going to pick on you first. If you'd read chapter 1 for us, verse 1 through 4, please. 1, 1 through 4? Yep, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Thank you. This letter is written to a church. A church that was filled with Christians. And what a joy as a pastor to be able to look at the spiritual progress of your church and be encouraged by its progress. What encouragement to the members of the Thessalonian church that Paul could write them his glowing encouragement. Paul is confident of their growing faith and praises God for it. He praises God for it, not them. Great reminder that faith is a gift from God. Paul has good evidence for his assurance of their faith, right? As their faith grows, so does their love for one another. We see that in, in, in 1 verse 3. Their faith is growing even in light of persecutions and afflictions, 1 verse 4. And Paul's boasting really means not boasting in himself, but boasting in the Lord. He's delighted at what the Lord has done, what he's, how he's used Paul to bring the gospel message to these people. But before they were a church, what were they? Acts 17 tells us they were, this is point one on your, on your outline, they were Jews, Greeks, and leading women. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us they were also idol worshipers, which they had turned from. What turned this socially segregated group of idol worshipers into something Paul could call a church? What would it cost Paul to offer grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2? Well, the answer is the gospel. The gospel. We love that word. We love that word. We evangelize with it. We suffer with it. We disciple with it. We love our neighbor with it. We repent with it. We glorify God with it. And this gospel is good because it's his truth. Now notice the gospel that I gave you when we started this, the gospel of Marks. That gospel's not good, right? That gospel's not gonna save anybody. That gospel is going to impede the spread of evangelism that we would like to do as Christians. That's a hindrance to the gospel. But this gospel that we talk about is a good, good gospel. All the other isms, when I say isms, you know what we're talking about, materialism, human secularism, all these other isms that we've studied on Sunday night will never be the gospel, though some may lay counterfeit claim to it. False teachers make false claims, and we can't be surprised by that, but we must be ready to rebuke that in and out of season. Never be deceived by them. The true Christian gospel gives the church and church members their fundamental identity. Previous tribal associations must take, must take second place to the identity we have in our union with Christ. Okay, I just used a word there that maybe you're not familiar with. I said tribal identities. Anybody know what that means when I say that? Anybody want to speak to that? 
Go ahead, Lee. Well, it's just like any group that sees itself as an inclusive group. I, I don't know, we would use the word tribal very commonly, but that's really what it ends up. Yeah, actually, that word's getting used more and more and more now with, with intersectionality concerns and, 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 and the likes of that. So I think that's a word that's going to be wise for us to get used to. Uh, what, yes, Christian? Well, it's a, a something Christian. I am a gay Christian. I am a black Christian. I am a... So that you're, you're identifying that before Christian rather than I am a Christian. There he is. Exactly. So it's a... Travis, were you going to say something? Yeah, um, just really the, the whole concept is to, th is to continue thinking about people in a worldly way, that is to say, uh, judging people according to the flesh. And Paul said, though we used to judge people according to the flesh, we do so no longer, but we judge people according to spiritual terms. Yeah, that's great. And, and in this particular area of, of tribalism that we're talking about we can see with this church they had other identities before they became christians right they were they were jews they were greeks they were they were learned women they were fill in the blank there but there were lots of other identities before they became christians when they became christian what did their union become with christ how, how can i prove that from scripture boys and girls i'm asking how can i prove that where would you go in scripture to prove that? I'll give you a hint. Somebody turn their Bible to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Who's got it quick? What I want you to listen for, whoever decides to read it. All of it. All of Ephesians 1 until I say stop, and I'll stop pretty fast. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Stop. Christ. Stop. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep going. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. With Stop. Christ. Uh -huh. Blessed you in Christ. in Christ. Go on. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. Stop. Blessings in the where? Heavenly places. Again. Chosen in him. Chosen, Chosen in him. him. That's right. For the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. <laughs> Do I need to keep going? Does Gary need to keep going? Has, has the point been made? Yeah, so I'll hit, the, I'll, hit the, I'll hit the pause button there, right? Thanks, Gary. Appreciate that. So we see that that is called union with Christ union with Christ. So when we go up and, and meet an unredeemed fellow, Mike, how you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Believer, not a believer. That's believer. the only thing I'm concerned about right here, right? That conversation. Where's his union? Is his union with Christ? Is his union with his sin? Is his union with Christ? Is his union with his tribe? Where's his union? And that's what we want to be thinking about as, as members in the church, right? Members in the church, and as we evangelize and as we talk about the gospel, it's, it's where is that union? So Tricia gave a couple of examples of this. So, for example, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? I am a white Christian. So now that we've talked about tribalism, help me out here. Are you white or are you a Christian? Right. And what did I say first? That's right. You said white first. So my tribal identity is white. Okay, I'm a black Christian. Where's my tribal identity? Okay, but, but do I say now, 
Well, it doesn't matter if I'm black. Doesn't matter if I'm white. Doesn't matter if I'm Jew or Greek or whatever. Does that all of a sudden now, because I'm a Christian, not matter at all? What's our thoughts? Go ahead. So, are, are, would you say that would apply to the cowboy churches that we have in the community? <laughs> Distinctly. <laughs> Distinctly. So, where was I? Anyway, but so anyway, you threw me off, Russ. <laughs> so anyway, um, okay, okay. So here's the point I'm trying to make. We don't lose the fact that we're white or black or brown or green or yellow or any of those other things. That's still important, right? Why? Because we are image bearers, imago Dei. We're made in the image of God. These things are these these things are are, are important to us. So we never lose the fact that we have distinctives because God is a God of diversity, and I don't mean that in the way that most people are meaning it. It's the beauty of God's creation. But we lose that as our primary identity, and now we take another identity. And that's union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. So if I say that like a hundred times, forgive me, but that's, the, that's, that's kind of what I make sure we understand. So that's, a, that's kind of a short little spiel on, on, on tribalism right there. Uh, the true Christian gospel, if it were whiskey, would be 150 proof and would kick you in the teeth every time you drink it just like one writer said. And that's the gospel that we proclaim, that gospel, okay? So let's identify the components of the gospel, and as we study this letter, we can see where the gospel indicatives and imperatives are, things that we should understand that point us to the things we must do. The gospel thread in this passage is entirely a rope binding each thought to the next thought throughout the entire letter, a fact throughout the entire Bible. One last thing on tribalism. What's the problem with this? I am a gay Christian. Okay. The two cannot coexist together. I am a gay Christian. It can't exist together. What else? What is, what am I, so what is my tribe in that? Your tribe in that one is homosexuality. What is my union with? Homosexuality. My sin. That's correct. Yeah, exactly, Gary. I'm, it's, it's my sin. I've, I've elevated that. So now, and I'm glad you said it's an oxymoron, right? But, but have you heard other churches use that language before? Absolutely. Yeah. Proudly. Say that again, Megan. Proudly. Proudly. Did we maybe even hear apologies from the pulpit on Sunday night from mega church over in Berthoud on something like that? Yeah, we did, right? So let's don't be deceived by that. Let's when we hear language like that, let's immediately kind of kind of kind of go, okay, saved, not saved. What tribe? In the safe tribe? Some other tribe. But that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we want to go right here, okay? So help me think about this a little bit, you guys. We're going to talk about the gospel here a little bit. Is this the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. Thoughts? Okay, what, what part? Chuck, you're saying part of it. What part? Okay, what, what is true in that phrase that I just said? Jesus died for my sins. Okay, so that could be true. If you're saying that, and I don't know if you're a believer or not, if you have a credible profession of faith. It acknowledges our sin. It does. But the only part of that, if I don't know you're a Christian that's true, that might, that might be true, is Jesus died. 
That might be the only thing that's true. And if you walk into half the churches in America, if not more, they're, and you ask the average man on the street, the average Joe or Josephine, what is the gospel? And they're gonna say, Jesus died for my sins. And if you're not critical and you're thinking about this to ask good follow-up questions, you're gonna say, huh, man. Believer, yeah. believer. Now, let's say, let's say we say believer. What distinctions do we make after that? Or even before that, so we shake hands and we, we, we say, uh, we say no, 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 I'll say believer. What, what's, what's, how am I gonna to relate to you next from there? What are the two pillars of the church? What are the two things we do in church? Only two things the church does well, should be doing well. Evangelize and disciple. Thank you, evangelize and disciple. So I walk up to you, I'm thinking, believer, not believer, not a believer, what do I do? Evangelize. Evangelize. When we're in a counseling room, I got a guy comes in, he says, hey, you know, I've got, I've got this problem, I got this problem, I got this problem, I shake his hand, and he goes, hey, great, glad I'm here. I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old. I haven't darkened the door of a church in 35 years, I'm on my fourth wife, and, you know, last week I was locked up for the third time for drunkenness. Believer, not believer, use your discernment. What do you think, guys? Probably not. Right. Probably not. Pray to prayer. Pray to prayer, right? The smoke machine was going when he prayed it, right? See, I mean, he, he had a great little thing going, right? So, that's, that's, that's so we're building in this letter, as Paul's doing with his group here at the Thessalonians, we're building within our church community, within ourselves, discernment so we can, so we can say, believer, not believer, evangelize or disciple. What are we going to do? These are the things that the church are going to do, okay? So um, I'm going to use the blackboard here for a little bit, so I'll just talk about it if I'm not allowed to somebody holler at me. So, it's a white boy. <laughs> I don't want you to be a tribal guy with that. I'm going to use the board this way. Thank you. Board on the wall. Yeah, board on the wall. Okay. So here's the question. Let's see if we can flesh out and, 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 and commit, commit to our brain cells what the gospel is. Now, in a land, land far, far away, in a time long ago, the joke we used to always say is, when we would interview new prospective members is, can you share the gospel with me in 60 seconds or less? Now, is there anything magical about being able to share the gospel in 60 seconds? No. There's nothing. But what does that tell you if a person can't share it in 60 seconds or less? That they know it well. They know it. Maybe they've studied it. Maybe they've practiced it. I don't know, maybe something like the gospel, which as Christians we would say is of what? First importance? Well, I don't know. I might be something to know. So anyway, the question sometimes becomes in, well, Bill, help me hang my hat on some of these things. And I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you four little, little, little letters that we're gonna put up here. This is not a complete understanding of the gospel. I'll argue that the gospel must be at least this, but it's way, way more. And let me go one further with you. There's going to come a time when you guys are going to be so sick and tired of hearing me say the gospel, you're going to say, well, do we have to talk about the gospel again? And then my response to you is going to be this. Okay, now that we've talked about it, now let's try living it. Okay? And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to learn the gospel well. I don't, I don't, I don't presuppose that we don't already know it well, but you guys are going to help me flesh this thing out a little bit. And then we're going to think about how we apply it well as we, as we evangelize and disciple a world that needs evangelizing and disciple. Okay? So, first letter. Gee, what does that stand for? God. <laughs> Talk to the time. You and just <laughs> <laughs> What's the end? Man. What's the city? We aim for darkness. Christ. Christ. Open. Christ. 
Yeah, Billy, try a different color. Yeah, black or something. Black. Yeah. Can you use yeah. black on a white board? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, you see this? Jesus, God, man. Christ. 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 Okay. Prepare. Response. Response. But you're going to see that's a really good answer. Okay? Okay. So what we're talking about here is the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of Christ, and the nature of response. Okay? So God, man, Christ, response. This is a systematic way that we're taking small truths in the Bible and applying them to the gospel in, in smaller bites so we can kind of dissect it out a little bit and apply it specifically to, to those areas where we need to apply it. So in the case of like when I go up and shake Mike's hand, I'm thinking, brother or not brother, you know, one thing or another. If I'm not sure, I'll ask Mike a next level question, right? I'll say, hey, Mike, hey, you told me you walked the, you walked the aisle, you got, you know, with the smoke machine going and the, the sweet music was probably playing and you probably, probably skipped up the aisle, you know, as you, as you went there to pray the prayer and everybody was clapping and was saying, man, I was like, great thing. What are you reading in scripture now, brother? Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Okay, so anyway, God and Christ's response, and this is the discernment. So nature of God. So tell me some things that are here's, here's, your, here's your black markers, guys. Holy. Holy? Let's try this one. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I can see that. So so give me, I don't know. 40, 50 things about the nature of God. Somebody said holy. 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 Sorry, Lee, I got too much hair made up. What's holy. next? Creator. Okay, he's holy. He's creator. Omniscient. What else? Yeah. Omniscient. What is it? Stop omniscient. It. Somebody said omniscient. Okay, so we've got a list of omnis, right, that we can go through. <coughs> Didn't last long. <laughs> uh oh. It died. Gary's going to go get you another one. All right. It probably doesn't work. Holy Creator. Omniscient, what else? Eternal. Eternal. What else? Sovereign. Omnipotent. Omnipotent. What does that mean? All-powerful. Oh, he's all-powerful. Why would you say that? Why? Yeah, why? That's who he is. What else? Omnipresent. Omnipresent. Okay. What does that mean? Just. He's everywhere. He's present everywhere at all times. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I like that. What else? Merciful. <laughs> What's that? Merciful. He's merciful. <coughs> Wise. Wise. What else? He judges. Just. Okay. Loving. Loving. What else? He judges. He judges. Just. He's just. Well, that's He's just. just. <laughs> what else? What goes with justice? Law. Righteousness. Righteousness. Alright, so these are all the attributes of God right here. Now look, if we were, if we were honest, brothers and sisters, or sometimes when we look at the gospel, we know this. We kind of, we, sometimes we might think of the gospel kind of like a pizza pie. And you know, we've got, we got, we got a slice of love, and we've got a slice of justice, and we've got a slice of wrath, and we've got a slice of, of, of omniscience, and we've got a, we've got a slice of, of justice, and, 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 and we think, that's what I get like up. Lord, I need a slice of, I need a slice of love, but that wrath, <laughs> I don't want to slice of that today. After that. So the way we need to think about this, this is gross. Pardon me for even saying it like this. We need to think of these attributes as like being a crock pot. They're all together so tight, you can't separate one from the other. Interesting. 
These attributes are just so tight, it's all in the character. And that's why we can say what Travis can preach. God can't be just, can't be loving without being just. Right? I mean, these, these are not in opposition. These are not oppositional positions. Okay, these are these are these are glorious things, okay? So that's nature of God. Okay, how about nature of man? He brought you some new ones they're sitting. Oh thanks, Gary. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So nature. <laughs> Nature of man, what do we have? Sinner. Sinful doing. Did I get you real down there? It doesn't have a tip, I think. Image of God. There you go. Okay, what did you say, Travis? <laughs> image of God. Created in the image of God. What? Image of God. Okay, what's another word for that? There you go. Mago Daddy, what else? What else? Come on, you guys. This sounds pretty bad right here. Maggie said created. Creature. 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 <laughs> Talk to me about the sinful stuff a little bit. How, how's he sinful? Selfish. Okay, you see, see self-serving, self-centered. Okay. He's born in it, but he chooses it. Oh, okay. He was born in sin, but he also chooses. Okay, so he's, he's a sinner by inheritance and volition. Okay, well, is he loving? Of himself. Only because he's Well, he is. He can love, but he loves for ulterior motives. Right. He, he, he can conceive of love. I mean, he's, he, I mean he's, he's, he's partially loving, I guess we could say it like that. There is, there is, there is, there is a right? Right. Exactly. What else? Right on. <laughs> Sorry? Right. 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 <laughs> if we had God, it was omniscient, and at least. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there is some, there's, you know, I mean, there's the ability to learn. Okay. That's kind of important, right? Ability to learn. I mean, he can learn what? I and mean, what we're concerned about. He can learn God's word, right? He can learn. He can observe. He can see. He can taste. He can smell. Even, even our, in our sinful state, we see the glories and excellencies of Christ and God displayed even in these lesser abilities that man has. It's, it's, it's something to use God for, right? I mean, this is this is a, this is a really sweet thing. Okay, so nature of man. So we 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 looked at God, we looked at man. Uh, man, there's there's like a disconnect between us. Mm-hmm. How big is that disconnect? How big? Yeah, how big is that? Bigger than we can ever do it, bro. Sadly. It's a big goal to, 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 to forward. Okay, how about the nature of Christ? What do we have here? God, man. Okay? What else? Well, all the attributes of God you can put over under that cross. Okay. So we have to see a perfection. Okay. Nature, nature, nature. Now let's, now let's switch gears just a little bit and go to accomplishments. Why do we need propitiation? <clears throat> what does that mean? Atonement means that his sacrifice on the cross uh, satisfied the wrath of Christ, uh, the wrath of God, rather. 
Okay. And, and the reason why I'm asking that, Chuck, is not to, not, not to pick up anything like that, but I don't know many people in the room. I want to make sure we're all sharing the same sure. the same paradigm. Because it's a little about language, too. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And, and you know what? It's a blessing just to use biblical language, right? I mean, let's, let's, we're in a church, for heaven's sakes. Let's use the biblical language when we can, right? So that's that's super good, right? So we got so we got the atonement. What propitiation? Another good. What does that mean? Appeasement. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, satisfying God's wrath. Okay. So, so that would okay. So we'll you got there. Is the fulfillment of the law is that kind of what that's going towards? Say that again. He's the fulfillment of the law. Like he, he didn't replace the law, but he, he fulfilled the law. Yeah, he was. He was. He was. He was. The law fulfilled for <coughs> who? Who did he keep the law for? He was perfect, right? He didn't keep the law for himself. Why? Who did he keep the law for? First people. First people. He's the law keeper for us. So you're going to hear a lot of times when we link. We find I, I will have for Travis with too. We link law and gospel. The two are not in opposition. Long gospel, long gospel, long gospel. All right, this is this is this is the beauty, the beauty of, of, of God's plan for us. Okay, so what happened? To, what happened to him? What happened to Jesus? Crucified. Died. He died. He died. Goes to the ground. He offered. He died, and he rose willingly. Yeah. Okay, so he died. Let's give that one. He died. Died in rose. What? So what's the big deal? He died in rose. What? What? Why does this matter? He rose. What does it matter? That's the past tense of rose. So back on point. So what? What's the big deal about this? That's bad. That's wrong. <laughs> the D on the end is wrong. It's distracting. Yeah. <laughs> Put an A in front of it. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So since you corrected my spelling, you can also answer the question. <laughs> what's, the, what's the big deal, Travis, about this, 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 this rose thing? <laughs> that, that demonstrated the, um, the satisfaction of God's wrath. Yeah. That he was pleased with the sacrifice. And that uh, he accepted it, and uh, life triumphed over, uh, gave victory over the grave. Sweet. And without it, we are hopeless. We are, Paul said, without the resurrection of Christ. Mm -hmm. what, what if he had in rose? We are fools. What if he had in rose? What would that mean? Well, he would be just another man. He'd be just another man. Yeah. And we'd still be in our sins. And we would still be in our First Peter 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten him again unto a living hope by the resurrection. By the resurrection. Amen. We have a living hope because of the resurrection. Exactly. No resurrection, no hope. Jesus is still on the ground. He's still receiving the wrath of God. And we're the men of the most of you all. I've created a huge time problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he ascended. And he ascended. That's important too. Mm. R. What does the R stand for? Response. response. What is it? What, what do we mean by response? Does that mean I, I walk walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I first of all means humility. 
Okay. It's more clear for a reason, so we need to know about those first three letters before we can respond. Okay. So we what is our response to these true things? Repentance. Become aware of our sin. Scripture without belief in what the scripture says sin is, then repentance doesn't mean it's just a, it's just a word. Okay, so we have to. We're, we're going to agree that there's an inerrant authority of scripture that we like and we want to use. But what, what, what do you think? Well, so anybody can confess that they did something wrong. They're just agreeing that they did it. But to repent comes to turn and to change. Oh, turn confession for sake. So is confession not part of the response? Then? Sure. Okay, I don't well, I mean, we, we can write a board told the time yeah. no more room. Well, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, confession doesn't really matter. But First John 1 9. Yeah. Confess and forsake your sin. Okay. But let, let's get back to what Russ was saying. So, re repentance isn't just, I'm sorry I did something. Okay? So, we would see from, like, Colossians 3 13 thereabouts or Ephesians 4 22 thereabouts, we'd see the idea of putting off, 
changing and putting on, right? So that's, those are the things we're going to be looking for in that, in that situation is talking to Mike. What, what does he put on? What's he changed? What's he put on? And that's going to result in what? What we call fruit, right? I mean, in a local church, let's face it, here's what we are, a local church. If you're a member of this church, you're a fruit inspector. Okay? You're a fruit inspector. We're expecting each other's fruits. Yeah. And tell you, so repentance means it's the 180. It's still yeah. a phrase. By the way, there's a great about. conference. <laughs> <laughs> turning in circles of, and I say it with the families I work with with behavior, until you teach a child what to do, they're just going to keep finding the wrong thing to do because they don't know what to do. And so they're seeking that, I keep doing this wrong thing and I keep getting in trouble for it, but I don't know Yeah, that's the 360, not the 180. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you just, you do, you just keep spinning your wheels. And until the Lord reveals to you Christ and your need for a Savior, you're just going to keep spinning and you're going to keep looking and you're going to keep going, gosh, I'm just a bad person and I have nothing to do well, with it. Right, and typically the Lord's going to reveal that to you through the preaching of the word, interaction with other believers that have a clear enough way of thinking that they can, they can ask these questions and go, evangelize or disciple? What do we do? That's what we do. We evangelize or we disciple. That's, 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 our, that's our, that's our, that's Okay. The gospel fundamentally changes our identity and our destiny. Our old tribal identity has changed. From dark to light, from a child of wrath to a child of mercy. Um, for what it's worth, this little numeric right here is also a good way to organize sermon notes if you're listening to someone preach who you maybe haven't listened to preach before. Or you're, or you're saying, you know, there's something, I don't know if that was right, I don't know if that was wrong. And... I confess in front of the whole world, Travis, that I did this with you. I also confess before the whole world. <coughs> I had my card filled up before I were 10 minutes into it. So you can take your piece of paper and you can divide it like this. <coughs> right here, you put G, M, C, R. Doesn't matter if he's got an outline for you or not. If the pastor's got an outline, great. If not, that's fine as well. And you're listening as he exposits the passage. <coughs> the normal diet of a healthy, growing church, the exposition of God's word, not optical preaching, is what's he saying about true things about God? Is he, is he saying good, good, true things about God that we know from our discussion of the gospel right here? Is he saying correcting true things about man? Will he use the word sin? I gotta tell you, that word's in short supply in some places. Christian? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're not just messing around. Okay. Oh, look at the clock. <laughs> yeah. um, That's your helping talk. <laughs> this is things she's most worried about, trust me. Right? <laughs> Swirl. Um, <laughs> where? Is he saying true and good and correct things about Christ? Is he saying good and true and correct things about the response, repent and believe? Opens are, 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 are filled with men that are scared to say, Sin. They're, 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 they're scared to plead for people's souls to repent. Brothers, we don't want to be that church like that, right? We want to, we want to be the church that does this. And then when you get all these things filled in, you get on the top of your lungs. Beat up. I thought that was a Catholic church. 
right. Don't say it here. <laughs> I'm going to go into fast forward here for just a second. I was going to go into a biblical theology way of understanding the gospel. We'll save that if there ever is another next time. Okay? Paul is confident that this is a group of Christians saved by faith and united by the gospel, and they are a church. But what happens? I'm going to take three. I'm going to take three answers on this. So be ready. What happens if the church is not filled with Christians, otherwise known as regenerate, converted, believing, repenting sinner saints? What happens? Three quick hands. Social gospel. Social gospel comes in. You want me to repeat the question? Yes. Okay. So the question is, what happens if a church is not filled with sinner, with I'm sorry, with Christians, otherwise known as regenerate, converted, believing, repenting sinner saints? Um, if the truth is preached on Sunday, there will be conflict. There will be conflict. They will. They will write up everything that's said because they don't like what they're doing. Great. If it isn't preached from the pulpit every Sunday, then that church will soon begin to look like the world. Look like what? The world. The world. Uh, any evidence of that out there, you guys? Everybody. Just wondering, Travis. <laughs> I was going to say, the most harrowing thing is what you see in Revelation 2 and 3, where Christ says, I'll remove my lamps, and he's just going to leave. Christ will depart. It'll be on the outside knocking on the door saying, hey, you going to let me in? What's, what's mission drift, Travis? Can't hear you. What's mission drift? Mission drift. Um, <clears throat> Back from the good old days. Yeah, it's just um, from my good old days. That's something we didn't do. Um, but, Correct. But it's it's any time that you lose sight of something that clear. There you go. Anytime you lose sight of that, <clears throat> and you start to become enamored with anything else, uh, distracted by other things, um, you lose your spine. You know, it's a bunch of invertebrate leaders. Who can't uh, can't make decisions and can't stand up to sinners. And, and let's use let's use a Greek word. What would you call men like that? Soft men. Malakoi. Oh, is that the word? Malakoi. Okay, there we go. Soft men. Okay. Um, okay. Let that one lie right there for now. Um, we're going to suffer mission drift. Mission of the church is what? What are the two things? Mission of the church. Is it is it Easter egg hunts? No. Is it raising money for United Way? No. Other people can do that better than we can. Let's do what we do best and what we're called to do, what we're authorized to do, what we, what we must do, the gospel imperative. We evangelize and we disciple. That's what we're going to do. Okay. All right. Next question for you guys. I'll take three quick hands on this one, too. Who does the evangelism in the local church? All believers. All believers? All believers? In the local church, yeah. The state. What? Why don't we have elders? I thought the elders were supposed to do the evangelizing. They're not? Oh, they're part of that set. Okay. So, so is it the pastor that does the evangelizing in the church? Is he the main evangelizing agency in the church? Him too. I don't know. I'm, I, I, may not, I may not call him main. I'll call him one of many evangelizing units in the church. And I think as, as members and believers, we want to say, wow. Praise God, we got a, we got a preacher up there that's, that's, that's teaching us, that's discipling us, when, that's counseling us. When he's up preaching on Sunday, brothers, he's discipling us, he's counseling us. I'm using those two words pretty much interchangeably. He's, he's instructing us, he's, he's, he's motivating us, he's bringing the word of God to us. And if we sit there and, and, and receive all that great information, now the, tra the word Travis uses when we get all the information, and it just goes round and round and round, never goes anywhere, what's the word he uses? We're stuck in a cul-de-sac. You know the word I use? 
we're constipated. We just can't get it out, okay? <laughs> so that's our deal, okay? We gotta be able to get it out, right? So, so we look to our elders as leaders, teachers, evangelizing agents, gospel, gospel leaders, and the likes of that. But as members of this local church, we've got that same obligation to take the word and proclaim it. When Tim's out there flying the line, I'm going to be praying Tim. Man, Tim's out there praying for his guys. When I'm, when I'm out there flying the line, hey, I got a guy stuck in the cockpit with me for five days. If I can't choke a gospel out once in five days, you know, you need to take my union card back or something, right? So anyway, that's the review. Yes? Just to throw it out there, the Bible says that the pastors and the elders are the shepherds of the church. And so while I'd say evangelism is obviously part of what every Christian should do, in Scripture, shepherding the church is their primary title. And so if they're not shepherding the church, they're not caring for us and keeping out the wolves, they're not helping us stay fit and healthy and growing. And so... Just to kind of throw that out there, I think we expect a lot from our pastors and our elders, and we sit back and say, oh, they can feed us and take care of us, but we're right. not going to go. So what we're trying to do is kind of up every, everybody's game, right? I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to up everybody's game. Let's, let's make sure as members of the church, we're bringing the best game we got to the fight. And believe me, there's a fight coming, okay? And we see this in Second Thessalonians right here. All right. I think I want to make this exhortation to evangelize even stronger. In a world that's gone crazy, including those inside some of our churches and seminaries, the church must be a gyroscope. The gospel is a gyroscope of the church, and it's being spun by two great commandments, shortened to love God and love man. To avoid being a pale echo of the world's current confusion, we must be, by God's grace, we must learn how to apply God's word to any attempt at political correctness, multiculturalism, diversity, cultural Marxism, sensitivity, training, and whatever else these crazy folks in and out of the church try to stuff down the faces of and throats of God's people. Sometimes we can do this with a smile on our face. Sometimes we're gonna, we're gonna do this with tears in our eyes. And sometimes we're gonna have to resist this with a kick to the rear end. The gospel and its riches is the vehicle the Lord has given us to fulfill the mission, gimmicks, crazy programs, smoke machines, 30-piece praise bands, free trade coffee, and microbrew beer are distractions to the mission. A group of faithful overseers, faithfully serving deacons, teachable, engaged congregants, all repenting of sin and understanding their chief identity in Christ is just fine. Thank you very much. We need nothing else other than that, okay? Okay, so let's back up the wagon just, just a second. When, actually, we'll take the wagon on forward. So Paul identifies love for one another as another mark of the, of the healthy, growing church. Hey, we've already made it to verse 3, okay? So what's a practical way to measure love in the congregation? What's a practical way? How do I know? I don't, Joe, right? Yeah. Joe doesn't know me. I don't know him. How do I know Joe loves me? He smiles. He smiled. Oh, well. how, do I, how, how might I know Joe loves me? Chuck? Well, this isn't necessarily a sign of love, but serving is an outgrowth of love. I mean, other people serve other people, but it's not out of God's love. Yeah. But, but, you know, exactly. church, I think service, serving, that, that, would that's be a sign of love. Yeah, that's explicitly the answer I'm looking for. Travis, I see your hand. Yeah, Joe tells you the truth. Sometimes it's the truth in a, yeah. in a corrective sense, and sometimes the truth in an encouraging sense. Right, so, so Joe's willing to be inconvenienced for me. Joe's willing to get in my business enough so that I can know and be known, know and be known. 
Joe's willing to be inconvenienced, willing to get in my face, willing to speak the truth to me, yeah, that's it. So it's not this fuzzy little feeling that we're going to have that we're going to get by a campfire, all hold hands and sing kumbayas while we make a, you know, I don't know, roast whatever it is we're roasting in Colorado these days, right? Vegetables. Vegetables, yeah, right? That's not what we're going to do, right? This is a, this is, this is love, is, this love is deeper than that. What the, what, what the world calls love, we call neighbor nice. We don't want neighbor nice in the church doors, right? We want love in the church doors. Sometimes love's going to look really, really friendly and really, really nice. Sometimes love looks like taking somebody out to eat and, you know, and, and, and entering into their suffering with them, as we're going to talk about here in a minute. But other times, love's, love's going to look, look different. Sometimes love's going to look like Matthew 18, right? And that's still love. It's still love, okay? All righty. If Paul looked at us both individually and corporately, would he say that our love is growing for one another? I'm going to leave that as a rhetorical question at this point. In verse 4, Paul boasts in the Thessalonian church for their steadfastness and persecutions and afflictions. I am going to ask this question. Does our church and our faith grow best in times of trial or in times of ease? In times of persecution or in times of prosperity? Persecution. Persecution. What's the evidence of that? History, yeah. well, the history of the Christian church and yeah. its immediate spread. And it spreads, right? So as, as 21st century American Christians, our, our threat probably isn't persecution yet. Our threat is probably prosperity. That we can put our faith in something other than the storehouse of promises God's made abundantly clear to us. Okay? All right. We're going to go to point two. I need somebody to read. Chuck, I'm going to pick on. Actually, I'm going to pick on Gary. You're going to be the next guy I pick on, Chuck. Gary, can you read uh, chapter 1, please, verse 5 through 12? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may, be, you may consider worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes upon that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling to fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Thanks so much. So Paul encourages the Thessalonians in verse 5 in particular with the certainty of God's righteous judgment for them. And, and that righteous judgment affirms that their election is evidenced by their worthy, faithful suffering. So what we need to kind of pull out of this, you guys, is that, first off, we're going to suffer. Any, anybody have any questions about that? I'm looking at Jordan. You're a young guy. Any questions about you're going to suffer, bud, right? And if you don't suffer, we need to be concerned about, really, if we've picked up the cross of Christ on this, right? So we're going to suffer. And what does Paul say in, in verse 5? It's a mark of what? God's righteous judgment. God's righteous judgment. This is, this, is, this is, yet again, I mean, I want you to see in this, I mean, I know I'm going fast, but, but I want you to see the hope in all this, right? I mean, he's using suffering and saying, wow, they're suffering, they're suffering well, 
looks like Christians. Surviving under suffering is a type of fruit. Okay? It's a type of fruit. So, you know, praise God that they were doing that. The, the, um, these tormentors, I mean, it seems like they were Jewish folks. They chased Paul out of town once. They chased him out of town again. And finally, he left Berea, went to, went, to, went to Athens. These guys were mean as striped snakes, right? I mean, they're not, they're not sitting there just saying, sticks and stones may break my bones. These guys are, are serious bad dudes, right? Enough to make men that were not Malachi, Malakoi, leave. So this is a big deal. And, and if we're going to take our place from these guys, we're going to understand that suffering is suffering we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go to. And at least you say, oh, gosh, I don't want to suffer. I'm just telling you, that's what you got. But look at the hope in this. It's going to count you as righteousness, okay? It's a sweet, it's a sweet thing. The church is holding fast. Paul promises in this, in this passage that hope, promises hope that their suffering won't last forever. And in verse 9, we see the tormentors, the tormentors will suffer eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might, as well as those that don't obey the gospel. Commenters stress that these vengeful perpetrators and ungospel believers would face judgment, not because they didn't obey the law, though they weren't, but because they weren't obeying the gospel. Those that will not bow in repentance now, or in the, while we're in the land of second chances, will bow one day in final judgment. And for these brothers and sisters that were facing persecution, that had to be, that had to be helpful for them to think about it, right? It's, it's suffering that's not, that's, that's not without purpose. It's suffering where there will be justice done, and it's suffering for the glory of God, okay? You think about Malachi 3, verse 2, and there's an additional little side note there, and that's, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? And the answer is only those who have repented and believed the gospel. So there's a good takeaway here for Christians. How we stand up under suffering is also how we will stand up in judgment. How we stand up under suffering is how we will stand up in judgment, okay? Our trials that we're going through, just like with these folks, are judgment. But it doesn't have to be a negative judgment. In fact, it's not. God has justified us as Christians, declaring us righteous and forgiven, demonstrating that we're worthy of His kingdom. Their suffering in verse 10 will result in Christ being glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who believed the message of the gospel. Marvel at. This is, this, is, this is a big phrase, right? It's conveying almost unimaginable wonder in the sense, that, that, uh, in the sense of just unimaginable goodness and perfections and, and, and righteousness. When Jesus is marveled at, ultimately, the trial stop, sin ends, and innocence is restored. What a responsibility we have right now in this church, in this age, in this era, to proclaim this message. But how are we going to proclaim it? I mean, honestly, sometimes I walk into a, into a great opportunity to evangelize, and it's like, hope you have a great day, right? I mean, I'm not bold. Not bold as I could be. What do I do about that? I think we've got to pray. I think we just have to pray. I think we have to take it before the throne room and just pray. And repent. Yeah, exactly. And all pray for all And that's our hope. So under point, I guess under point two, this would be your, your second fill in the blank. Sorry, I've been negligent in not making that clear. 
Trials will always drive us to our hope. Trials will always drive us to our hope. What hopes have your trials driven you to? Do these hopes coincide with what you believe or with what you own? All right. All right, your suffering is not pointless and it will sanctify you. Your suffering is often very personal, but it's not to be private. Uh, your hope in Christ is bigger than your trial. But what if it doesn't seem like it? What if your trial seems bigger than your hope in Christ? Give me two or three hands. What do we do, Gary? You've got to readjust your focus and get your eyes on Christ. How do I do that? Pull myself up on my books by my bootstraps? Be in the Word, start setting, and be in the asking Word. God to reveal. Asking God? Okay. What else? Scott, you had something? Did you want? Yeah. No. Press into the Word. Press into the Word? Start using all the disciplines. Crispy? Um, I think that's part of what the body's for, too. Oh. We're, supposed to, we're supposed to be getting encouragement from one another when we're <clears throat> struggling. Yeah. How are we going to know about that? How are we going to know that you're struggling? How, how, how are you going to know if I'm struggling? Well, you have to ask. You have to get to know people and know what they're struggling with and ask them. There you go. we got to be What's in each how? other's lives, right? Practice yeah. truth-telling. What's that? Practice truth-telling yeah. each other. Yeah. We've got to, got to know and be known. Yes, sir. Another commercial for Sunday night prayer meetings. Boy, yeah, let's evangelize each other with, with that first, right? I mean, Sunday, Sunday morning teaching is great, right? I mean, we, we get counseled, we get discipled, we get edified, we get taught. But the heart and soul of the church, that's seen Sunday night. Just saying. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of confessing our faults to one another. Letting people know that we're struggling in areas. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Gary. And I need to make that clear under the R right there. We, we want to be thinking as a church body about what I'll call low-threshold repentance. In other words, and what, what I mean by that is we repent often and we repent early. We don't, we don't wait till, till something gets so blown up out of here that we can hardly, hardly even open our mouths to say what it is, right? I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter. Let's, let's repent early and repent often and make that be the pattern of, of, of faithfulness that we demonstrate to other people. What happens when, when, when that becomes the pattern of the church? Easy repentance. What, what, what's, a, what's a practical outcome of that? Any thoughts? Pull out the weeds when they're really small. Yeah, good gardening analogy. I like those. That's really hard. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> hard to see them? No, it's easier because they come out easy, but your fingers have to be yeah, accurate. <laughs> so, here, so, so here's what we get with early repentance. And when the church gets used to early repentance, you know, I mean, that's being part of the, part of the church, we avoid this. So here's what we avoid. Hey, Bill, I got to talk to you. Can we, can we meet? Can we meet it? Can, can, can we meet for lunch? Can we meet for lunch? And let's say the person asking me that question is about is a male and is about 25 years old. What's he want to talk about? You think? Somebody say it out loud. Porn. Pornography. That's what he's saying. Okay, so here's how I can respond to that. I can go. Oh my God, another guy that's got a porn problem. Or, hate to pick on you girls, this problem is growing rapidly amongst, and I'm not trying to put any thoughts in anybody's mind, so if I'm doing that, forgive me for that and, and, and take that thought captive and don't go there. But this is not just a male problem anymore. And, and we, we need to recognize that, but, but, but more to the point, rather than the eye roll, we go back in and we look at the gospel. What would the gospel say? about a guy that just came up to you and said, 
I've had a porn problem. Or maybe he says this, I've had a porn problem and I've had it for 30 years. Well, why don't you evangelize? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. maybe. What, what else? He's recognized the gap between God and his holiness and him and his sinfulness. Right, so he's got, what does he, what does he have right there? He's got conviction for sin, right? Right. I mean, he's got a spiritual pulse. Yeah. You know, I mean, the homie's, got, the homie's got, a, got a spiritual pulse. That's great. You know, I mean, until there's conviction of sin, there's never going to be repentance. Right. But, but what else is that? He goes, I'm never going to beat this. He goes, I'm never going to beat this problem. Trisha? Well, I've heard it said before. Then you can go to, well, if God can raise Christ from the dead, a man to life, he can help you with this, whatever the sin is. Exactly. Hey, he raises it's the dead that life. kind of power. Right. He raises the dead guy's life, and you're telling me he can't, he can't speak to you about your porn problem? He can't, he can't, he can't, he can't, he can't do this? Right. I, I recently uh, was counseling a young man with this very same problem. <clears throat> and he, he uh, grew up in a Christian home and confessed Christ. And so when we started, when I started working with him, it was more of a discipleship type of thing. Mm -hmm. And eventually over several months, it became more of an evangelizing, evangelism, yeah. because I found out that maybe he never did have a relationship with the Lord and I was attacking it completely wrong. And mm -hmm. uh, instead of trying to deal with the, the symptoms of the, the pornography, we need to get deeper to the root. And yeah. So that's really that's that's really a good segue for for this idea of know and be known. Ask good questions. Don't don't accept the first answer that that comes comes by the road because here's what you're going to find, you guys. The problem's going to present itself, you know, kind of in a, in a horizontal plane right here. Okay. This case come up pornography. Sorry, I never never. Maggie doesn't even describe for whatever, right? <laughs> and the person kind of comes, starts talking to Travis, starts talking to anybody, to Gary, any of the elders, and, and he's mad at this problem, and they're showing up like this, and, 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 and he goes, he's my problem, is going on. Is that his problem? No. What's his problem? Sin. Okay, sin? What sin will they lose God. Okay, so he's, so back to this union language, right? He's got to get this union with the sin. Well, what's his problem? What's his problem? What kind of problem does he have? He's got a worship problem, yes. right? He's worshiping, he's worshiping an idol. Pleasure, false god. Right. And would you believe, Trisha? No. Okay, I'm sorry. This is the handy. You just tell me all any good thought I've ever had. She's given to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, so anyway, the, the point of this, and, and this would be number three in your blank, you're hoping Christ is bigger than your trial. Your hope in Christ is bigger than your trial. And, and when you feel like that's not the case, imagine a movie camera, and, and now you're filming yourself at the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've, you've finished the race well, you've, you're, 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 you're in that throne room, and, and man, your mind's just like going crazy, you're going, wow, look at all this, and, and hallelujah, praise be to God. And, it's, it's almost more than we can imagine. It's better technicolor than a Walt Disney show. Okay, I mean we're just going crazy with it. And and back that camera out to where you are now. And I know there's going to be some of us in this room right now that are going to be suffering with something, whether it's a health issue, a family issue, a kid issue, a, an addiction issue, any one of a number of things. Back that camera out and just remember that that focus, that frame that you had in light of eternity. 
that you can persevere through these, through these struggles that you have right now because you've got brothers and sisters in the fight. You've got brothers and sisters in the race. You've got an awe-inspiring, sufficient, authoritative word of God. You've got all the tools in the box. You can fight this stuff right here, okay? So last, last comment on this thing before we move on is... As brothers and sisters, we want repentance to be low, so we can do low threshold repentance. But then after repentance, <coughs> we expect victory. <coughs> and here's what I mean by that. I've sat around with a group of men before, all counseling this very issue right here, and week after week after week, kind of I just felt, I felt, I felt, I felt, I felt, again. those were on the room, everybody felt again. This goes on for three months, okay? What's the problem with that? As a counselor, as a, as a church leader, why would you be concerned about that? What do we want to see here? What is the gospel promises? Victory. Do we have to keep saying that? No. <clears throat> and I want to look at these guys and say, show me the blood. Show me the blood. If you were just sitting in point of blood, I ain't seeing it here. So we don't want to accept just this, 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 we don't want to accept the transparency. I hate that word, but I'll use it. We don't want to accept transparency as a substitution for genuine biblical repentance. We just don't want to do that. We don't dare do that. We don't dare do that. It's kind of what Amy was saying earlier yeah. with regard to confession. And you see this in the world. You also see it coming into the church where this confession, this transparency, is, is like a faux repentance. It's like penance. It's like right. penance. And so if they kind of shame themselves publicly, they've gone far enough. All right. And now that, that's not what we accept. Not because we're hard-nosed, but because we love. We want to see them worship the right God. And that plays into this idea of know and be known. We have to know and be known. Okay, so there has to be some aspects of that in here. I'm going to jump to point three and leave the rest of this unsaid for now. Um, point three, Paul instructs and give hope by, by correcting deceptions about the future. Uh, Mr. Chuck, would you bring us home on that one, please? That's going to be uh, Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Uh, this is the HDSB version. Okay. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? And you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. 
Well, they perished because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. Thank you. So it was not only the, the persecutors who were disturbing the peace of the church, it was false teachers as well. Depending on location, the intellectual assault on Christianity is often fiercer than the physical, and both are beneficial refining fires. Both are beneficial refining fires. Both cause havoc as well. Paul first identified the nature of the error in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then corrects it by the full exposure to the truth in 4, 4 through 12. Chapter 1 ends with an admonishment to be resolved for good works for faith. Chapter 2 starts with the same admonishment, but in the negative. Don't be shaken in mind or alarmed by either a spirit or a spoken word or even a false letter that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, don't become untethered to your faith. Don't become untethered to your faith. They had this concern because at least some of them had been listening to false teachers. I'm going to reread that 2 verse 12 again, just out of the ESV thing. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is the return of Christ. Let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you in any way. Why was this alarming? Why were these guys, why were the Thessalonians alarmed right here? Well, if the persecution, the affliction were still continuing and Christ had returned, where's the future hope? Where's the future hope? It's not there, right? So false teachers specialize in, and this is one of your blanks, false teachers specialize in false hope, false gospels, and false repentance. Let's see if we can quickly find 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5, please. So 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5. 2 through 5? 2 through 5. Okay. Familiar passage. You got it, Gary? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Keep your finger there for just a second. So let's see what we can extract from that. So false teachers are going to tell us what we already want to hear in the untrained mind. Okay? They won't endure sound teaching. False teachers tell us something close to what we're already believing in many circumstances, okay? False teachers appeal to our untrained hopes, i.e. they teach to our passions, okay? False teachers are always motivated by three things, greed, glory, and power. Every one of them, greed, glory, and power. False teachers are going to be enemies to evangelism and discipleship. In other words, they are enemies to the church. Public enemy number one. And false enemies will subtly, sometimes not so subtly, but subtly call righteous things wicked and wicked things righteous. Can you think of an example of that going on right now? Somebody put their hand up there. Tell me. Lee. Poker nights with beer and, and cigars. That's mild. 
still. Somebody, somebody up, Lee, on that. Extreme for me. Somebody, 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 somebody up. Same sex mirage, right? There you go. Not just same-sex, sexual identity as a whole is... Yeah, whole gender. Transgender, transgender, I'm a guy, a girl. So, uh, I was reading the thing this morning, and this one, this one guy wrote this. He goes, he goes, conservative, conservative, conservative Christians are just slow liberals. So to put that analogy, we've all heard more. How do you boil a frog? Slowly So with this false teaching, why we want to have our mind just attuned to this, just sharp as a razor blade, because we know the gospel, because we apply the gospel, because we're in each other's lives, because we're knowing and being known and the likes of that. We want to have that, that scalpel-like, razor, laser beam-like view and, and be able to hold that up to people that we consider teachers and say, good teaching, bad teaching. Teaching we're going to follow, teaching we're going to run away from as fast as we can. Teaching that we're going to just push out the door, teaching that we're going to say, he's one of us. Okay? Important point there. Okay, how do we do this at Grace? I'm a new member. How do we do this at Grace? How do we, how do we protect the flock? I'm looking at an elder here. Gary, how do we do this? Mr. Newcomb teach. We take a lot of time before we let people teach. We're about the business of finding teachers all the time. We're looking for those who are doctrinally sound before we allow them to teach. Okay. And we evaluate them okay. every time they teach. That's why you're here before. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, even, even uh, you know, that, that's very <laughs> prior to that, it's having a very strong membership process where you are examining uh, people's testimony and credible, credible profession of faith, examining their life. What would happen if you didn't do that, Travis? Oh, she's just, uh, just uh, the, the gates are open to anybody. Yeah. So, an inattentive membership process will result in the church being filled with people that are false converts. Correct. And false conversion is the death of the local church. Yes. And what's the problem with that? What's the local church's main, main purpose again? Evangelism. So does a dead and converted church evangelize the disciple? No. Well, if they do, who knows what the evangelized disciple do? Right. right? There's nothing that I want to give account for before holy Christ is God. So, so I'm just, I'm speaking as a congregant here. I'm praising God for elders that care enough about this to ask these questions. This is the first step of number being known. This is, a, this is a super thing. Gary? Well, the other thing I think that has really changed is our looking very carefully at what's being taught. Because for a long time in the church, if somebody had a favorite subject or a favorite book, that teacher would teach from that. And we could have been teaching five, six different theologies but we were a church. Right. But uh, one of the things that I think that's really happened in the last several years is becoming very careful about uh, looking at the material we're going to use. Yes, sir. Even like our library right now, with the books we put in there, we want to make sure uh, that it gives a good foundation. Excellent. I'm going to go ahead, Chuck. Well, I was just going to add that it's often not an elder deacon or uh, even a, maybe an usher uh, who is the first contact for a newcomer. It could be somebody who slips in and sits right next to you 
And those of us um, in the body, just stressing the importance that we all need to make sure that we understand sound doctrine. Yeah. You know, as, and that gets back to the membership process, but that's where the first encounters often are in that back row, sitting next to somebody who's brand new. Trisha, I'm gonna to apologize to you for not getting finished. Okay. I'm gonna to apologize to you for that. I'm gonna I'm gonna give these notes to Josh. You can put them online if you want to, or, or any of you guys be happy to send them to you if you want. But I'm gonna kinda of, kinda of, kinda of run off what you just said there for a second. Right? Because if we, if we said the elders aren't the primary aren't the only primary evangelizing agencies in the church, then that kind of puts the onus back on on members again, right? And what's what's the value of that? Why 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 is that a good thing? Why is it good that we all think this way? Power in numbers. I think when there's five of them now, right? There's 300, 400 of us. Well, what's our membership right now, Travis? 192 or something. She's like speaking that. like a Baptist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our our membership, uh, the actual membership of adult members is uh, 157. Okay, way off there. 157. Yeah, <laughs> yeah number of number it's of people attending is, is more than that. Yeah. But, but, but people that are proof, that have gone through the process to yeah. ensure that. Right. I mean, there's other believers in there, but but God's word is going to spread. If you have people that are hairdressers that are spreading the God, word of God there, and people that are teachers that are talking to fellow teachers and people, you're spread through the whole community, and you've got God's word out there rather than relying on five men uh, to do it. I think that's I think that's wise. I'm going to jump. I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead again. So you're 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 just going to have to see the rewind version of this thing later. But um, I want to talk, if, if, you, look in, if, you, if you look back at, 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 your, at, your, at your Bible right there, we're going to see, we're going to see in about, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five places, something I want to draw our attention to. We're talking about the gospel, we're talking about membership, we're talking about how this is such a, a firm foundation. But I want to I I pose this next question, and it'll, it'll just... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let however many people can answer can. But what do we stand firm on here? What allows us to stand firm? And by that I mean be resolved. So if you look in this particular passage, you're going to see the phrase steadfast, resolve, steadfast again, in him, because of him. Lots of steadfast, resolved language. What is, what, well, first off, what does resolve mean? Determined. Okay, determined, determined. at that moment, or is it predetermined? It's determined to accomplish a goal, okay. an objective, stay the course until that goal is accomplished. Right. And I'm even going to argue it's a predetermined position. In other words, you take your mind captive to the Word of God, and you say, look, I know I can be tempted to fill in the blank, whatever it might be. This is the maneuver I have in place to escape that snare. I'm predetermined. Somebody comes and says, hey, Bill, what do you think about same-sex marriage? I'm predetermined to have in my mind what I'm going to say. I'm resolved, right? So somebody, somebody, I don't know, you can fill in a hundred different things, but this resolve is a predetermined effort based on what? God's good word. 
It's not just based on my feelings or, or whatever the cultural thing. It, it must be based on God's good word, right? So, you know, think about like verse 111. That, that says, make you worthy and fulfill every resolve. Verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, don't be shaken. The negative tense of have resolve. 2 verse 15, brothers, stand firm. Uh, 2 verse 17, comfort your heart and establish them in every good work and word. 3, three verse uh, 14, don't grow weary of doing good. Said another way, don't grow tired of having godly resolve to do good works and good words. Okay? For us, it's rooted in God's command. Right? We're going to do this because it's rooted in God's command, his fear, his obedience, his promises. Paul is saying, you have a good game plan. I've given you a really, really good game plan. Stay with it. Stay the course. If resolve is absent from church or individual, every type of false teaching will enter the church. Every sin will be, will be condoned and, every, and it will disguise itself in the wolf's clothing called grace. And I promise you it is not grace. Okay? Last thing before we quit, uh, Gary, if you still have your Bible open, I'm going to make you flip back. Let's, let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. You just read that for us. No, I'm sorry. Out of, out of 2 Thessalonians, please. And you want to? Verse 16 and 17. Out of 2. Out of 2. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This may be the sweetest spot in the whole letter. When hope seems distant to you and when trials seem overwhelming <coughs> This good hope through grace in verse 16 is Paul's reminder upon reminder upon reminder that in the gospel we have hope and grace. Since we have that good word and are established in what we do, we do good works and good words. Now, I spoke very, very little on the section of the lawless man. And I bled hours putting that together for you guys. So, um, we can talk about that offline later. We can do anything that we need to do on that. Uh, or we don't have to talk about it at all, and that'll be fine either way. But uh, this, page, this book, is, this, this, this whole letter is a page and a half long in my, in, my, in my Bible. I've got roughly 900 pages. This is one and a half pages. But even with having to fly over some of these things, we see how many Christian doctrines are there, the, 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 if not explicitly spoken to, then certainly alluded to strongly. And I would just encourage you this week, if you, if, if you have some uncommitted time to spend in the Word, I would go back and look at, at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. I think, I think Trisha's read it 30 times in the last, last four days, and, or no, in the last two weeks. <coughs> well, once a day, some of them more. So I'm trying right. to do it 30, day, 30 times in a row. Right. And, and for people like me, I've got to read it 30 times in a row just to remember it. So it's a good plan. But it's a sweet letter, and, and invariably, after she reads it, she'll come into my office while I'm working on this, and she'll go, man, did you see? It is a joyous letter. It's a hopeful letter. And I would want your hearts just to be encouraged by it. Yeah. All right, let me be respectful of your time and close this in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we got to spend looking at your word. 
And we, we just did such a quick flyover of truths that are rooted in blood-bought promises. Father, could you sink these truths into our mind? Could, 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 could these go from, from operative presuppositions to something that tastes as real to us as the food we just ate? That it becomes our operating paradigm in life as we go forward, that, that your, word is, your, word is, your word is life, your word is food. Father, help us to repent of sin, to love one another well, to know one another well. Let us be students of the gospel as we not just learn it in an abbreviated form, but as we, as we seek to apply that first to our own lives and then later to the lives of those whom you might trust us to. Father, I pray that we would be men and women of action, not just men and women of hearing ears. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.